2: Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, a podcast that's all about comic book movies, which you can now find at cinematicmultiverse.com. I'm Joe Cunningham, and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Seb Patrick. And James Hunt. We'll discuss the latest comic book movie and TV news before launching into our spoiler-filled discussion of Terry Zvigoff's 2001 film, Ghost World. But before any of that, I'm going to ask Seven James to explain a comic book concept as a movie fan I just don't understand now guys we've had all new all different Marvel so can you now explain to me what Rebirth is is it just DC doing the same thing, or
3: is there a little bit more to it than that?
1: <laughs> this is definitely a sub question because I, I <laughs> even I, don't understand what they're doing with this one.
3: Yeah. So yeah. So it is sort of DC doing the same thing.
2: Should the context of the last couple of years matter? Because the new Fifty Two was what three, four years oh, ago, five. And-
3: um, Five, and that yeah.
2: was and that was like an enormous relaunch, like resetting the entire yeah. universe.
3: So, in September 2011, DC did the New 52 relaunch after a crossover called Flashpoint that essentially rewrote the DC universe history. Um, and to to those of us observing at the time, it always seemed like it was quite abrupt, like it didn't feel like something that had been planned long term, because a lot of the characters and stories um, that got wiped out by Flashpoint. Never felt like they got to anything like a natural endpoint. It was just oh, flashpoints happening in a couple of months' time, and oh, we're rebooting everything. So they rebooted everything, and the idea was that all the sort of past timelines and alternate universes of DC all got kind of jumbled up and remerged together and stuff. And the main takeaway was. Um, Everything was absolutely rebooted in terms of comics titles, issue numbers, everything started again at issue 1. A lot of things got cancelled, a lot of things new things got launched. And the DC universe itself was restructured um with most of the characters being younger and the idea being that everything that had happened so far in the DC universe had happened within a roughly 5 year time frame. So the sort of Superman right. emerged 5 years ago and was the first superhero and then you know, everything kind of followed on from that.
2: It wasn't a case of lots of origin stories. It was kind of superheroes no, in full flow. But yeah,
3: they barely the did any origin stories. Actually, they they did do Superman with Action Comics. What they did with with Superman was they had Superman set in the present day, and Action Comics was set five years previously, and and went back and did the origin. For most other characters, they just picked up a status quo and filled you in on the origin you know with background information or just didn't bother in some cases um this did create a lot of continuity problems because it wasn't a completely clean slate the idea was that they could pick and choose what previous stories were and weren't supposed to have happened um, it created a lot right. of problems with batman for example because um with batman he had had dick grayson and jason todd um as previous versions of robin and, in five uh, years exactly and that's, a, and that's a really high hit rate and had somehow friends. conceived Damian Wayne while he was Batman even though Damian Wayne was ten years old biggest <laughs> problem was the fact that Grant Morrison's run was still going on and was a big like the premise of Grant Morrison's Batman run was every single Batman story ever basically happened in some way mm. and the premise of the new 52 is most of them didn't so the two right. kind of clashed once the, Once Morrison got his run run out of the way then you know they sort of um were able to just basically ignore that um but so anyway so you had the new 52 which was these younger hipper versions of all of the characters a little bit more influence from the tv and movies and stuff Um, like you know um, green arrow became much more like arrow from the tv show um and it basically hasn't really worked either creatively or in terms of sales some things have scott snyder's done a great run on batman for the last five years mm. there have been you know I, I gather that there's been some good stuff in things like green lantern but really it hasn't pushed dc on in the way that they hoped it would so what we're getting now is rebirth and the thing that you have to bear in mind about rebirth the thing that they want you to know more than anything other is it's not a reboot And it never was. And it's quite interesting tagline that because it sort of seems in (laughs) part to refer to the rumours that they were rebooting fully. So they're basically going, no, it wasn't a reboot. But I think what it's also saying is that the new 52 wasn't a reboot in the way that it was said to be at the time. Because what the key thing for Rebirth seems to be... Is not so much that they're rebooting the existing continuity. The existing new 52 continuity will remain in place. What they seem to be doing is folding back in a lot of the old stuff that the new 52 got rid of. This so, is like the most meta rep I've <laughs> yeah. ever heard of. <laughs> but it is, but it's, it's so it's like, I mean, I think the big one, the only one that they've really talked about in anything. Remotely close to detail is that the Justice Society, who were the original superheroes from the 1940s, non-existent in the New 52, are coming back. And the idea seems to be, I think, Bleeding Cool picked up on this more as a rumor than anything, that um, they have been made to be forgotten for a reason, and now people are going to remember. And I think that's going to be the catch-all explanation for bringing in things like the Justice Society, the Legion of Superheroes, which was set in the far future, which basically doesn't exist post New 52. Mm. Um, There's some teaser artwork, which is just a bunch of silhouette characters in front of this curtain background. And the characters are a Flash, which could well be Wally West, because Wally West hasn't really been in New 52, what looks to be a Green Arrow that looks much more like the 1980s Mike Grell version, uh, Jay Garrick looking like the Justice Society Jay Garrick rather than the new Earth uh, 2 Jay Garrick, a female Green Lantern, not sure who that is, Supergirl, who doesn't have an ongoing title at the moment, but who will be getting one, and what looks like Superboy, um, the, the Connor Kent clone. But I think that's misdirection, and I think that's going to be, um, in a, as a result of Convergence, which was the crossover where DC sort of tested the waters for folding back in the characters by... Basically, they established that in within the multiverse, those old characters did still exist. Um, and coming out of um, Convergence, the pre-New 52 Superman now lives on the New 52 Earth in secret with Lois Lane and their son. And I think that character with the S on his chest, who's shorter than everybody else, is going to be John Kent, who is... Clark's son and I think he's going to be super powered and I think he's going to be a new Superboy. Um, but from a publishing point of view what they're doing is they're cancelling absolutely everything um, and re- restarting all of their titles Sorry I read there was a rumour leading up
2: to this that quite a lot of it would be taking more of a lead from kind of like their film and
3: TV properties Actually they've said kind of the opposite which is quite interesting and th- this is one of the things that I think is kind of problematic about it is what this whole thing seems to be I mean the what Jeff Johns, who's the kind of one of the main creative director at DC has said is um, that they're looking to bring back the sense of legacy to DC, which I think is great because as a fan of DC Comics, the, the, one of the main things that I love about DC is that it's got this big history and it's got all these versions of these characters who I love and it's got these legacy heroes and you know identities that have been passed down over the years and it's got this long and rich history going back to World War II when the first superheroes arrived. Um, so if they want to bring that back and build on that history, that's great because to me the New 52 was basically saying we don't care about that history. Um, The problem is that I'm not the kind of fan who they need to try and appeal to. Because at the moment, I think DC's comics are mostly crap, but I'm still buying a few of them. Um, I will buy DC stuff if it has characters that I like in it. So they don't really need to appeal to me, as much as I'm pleased that they will. um, Seb, uh, Seb I need (laughs) to... They need to appeal to me right? exactly. And Jeff Johns has already kind of said that the, that the tone of this relaunch will be more looking to appeal to the to the older fans again. And it's like it's like they're basically saying, "Well, we tried to get new readers in, but it didn't really work, so we're going back to what we know." So um, it's going
2: to be it's going to be a load of issue ones
3: yeah and, a, a load of issue ones with two exceptions so they well so what they're doing is they're going they're now going to publish 32 series to begin with which initially sounds great because you know marvel and dc publish too many comics a month at the moment so mm. stripping it down to 32 sounds great until you discover that half of them are going to ship twice monthly so actually there's going to be probably still not as many as 52 a month but Still quite a lot. Um, Everything's resetting to number one, except for Action Comics and Detective Comics, which are going back to their original numbering, because Action Comics is going to hit 957... And Detective Comics nine hundred and thirty four. So basically, they're looking to the fact that they're going to hit a thousand at some point. Action Comic, even though Detective Comics started before Action Comics, Action Comics went weekly in the eighties or nineties for a bit, so it racked up more issues. So that's why it's ahead. So we will get Action Comics two uh, Action Comics a thousand in a couple of years, um, which. <sighs> I mean, we could have a whole separate podcast about the debate about numbering of comics, um, and in general, (laughs) I I agree that high numbers are a relic of the past, but to me, there are four comics which should maintain their original numbers from when they started because they're the four most important and historic comics. And they are action comics, detective comics, Fantastic Four and Uncanny X-Men. I think those four comics should always have their original numbers. So I'm quite pleased that those ones are going back because it gives it a bit of a sense of history. But everything else is pitching as a fresh start. But as far as the tying into the movies and stuff going, and I was, that was a very long-winded way of getting back <laughs> around to that, um, yeah, it, it seems like actually their attitude seems to be, if you want the TV and movies versions of the characters, they're in the TV and movies. Mm -hmm. I think they want to feel a bit less bound to have to have a version that's similar. And to an extent, I agree with that. And that's why I think there's this character who looks like the, the older version of Ollie Queen. It's like they've gone, well, maybe, you know... Not that many people are buying our Green Arrow comic where we've made him a bit like the popular TV show. Let's make him like the Green Arrow who's got all of this history and who people Mm. know and love. Um, At least it means that they are publishing a Supergirl comic again, um, which, you know, it's madness that they don't currently. Um, But that also kind of ties into one of the bigger problems with it at the moment, which is they've announced all of these comics. They've announced all the characters they haven't announced a single creative team yet, mm. and yet they're expecting comic shops and readers to place orders for these titles. And it's like, there's a new Supergirl comic, great, I will almost certainly buy it, but I would rather know who's going to be doing it, because it could be someone terrible. If it's going to be Scott Lobdell on it again, I'm probably not going to buy it. If it's going to be um, Amanda Connor and Jimmy Parmiotti and Emmanuel Lucicino, who recently been doing Starfire, fantastic, but it's just there are rumours like there's rumours that um, Tim King um, who's very much hot thing at DC at the moment will be doing Batman which is great he's a good writer um, I've heard word that a writer called Peter Tomasi who's been around DC for years used to be an editor is going to be doing Superman again that sounds good but it's all rumour and it's just that that along with the double shipping thing just it kind of says that no matter what they do in terms of the story and the characters and some of the character stuff sounds like stuff that will tempt me back because, you know, they might go back to the characters being a bit more like the characters who I like... They just don't seem to have a clue on the publishing side of things, how to actually make these things appeal and how to increase sales. It's just going back to number one. Oh, so you'll get a sales spike with all of these new number ones. But what do you do after that? Half of these new books that they've announced will get cancelled within six months. Um, They're they're not renewing Martian Manhunter, which is the best thing that they're publishing at the moment um, as part of this because he obviously just just doesn't fit in the publishing slate for what they're doing. It's just, you know... There are elements of this that excite me, but it's just, at the same time, it's really frustrating, because I'd I'd like to get a sense that they've got a clearer plan. And basically, what they're really saying is, the new 52 didn't really work, so we're giving you back some of this stuff. And so all that it really says is, the last five years was a waste of time. (laughs) James, are you going to buy any of them? Nah. (laughs)
2: Okay, Seb, well, I'll come to you when I'm trying to decide which of these (laughs) to buy. Um yeah okay so that that was Rebirth good explanation Seb
1: <laughs> he got a lot off his chest
2: <laughs> and James is still here which is nice yeah. for the listeners to
1: so know <laughs> um, okay well we'll
2: move on now to take a look at some of the comic book news that has broken over the past week um and really, the first one that I wanted to talk to you guys about is the Daredevil trailer. It's kind of There was a lot of stuff in the mini that I thought about bringing in here, and there has been trailers, but this is, this is our first proper look at Season 2 of Daredevil, I would say. Um, and I wonder what you guys thought. It was part one of a two-part trailer, part one fo- focused pretty much on the Punisher, and there's, there's a tease at the end of the trailer which seems to suggest that the second trailer will be electra focused. But what did you think of this first trailer? Are you looking forward to this season of Daredevil based on what you saw?
1: Yeah, you know, I've always I've said before I'm a huge fan of the way like the Punisher and Daredevil interact and stuff. So I'm fully on board with this series in about every possible way.
3: It's quite well, nicely timed because like, I don't know about you guys, but since we did that Punisher episode, I've been on quite a Punisher kick and I've read Like, I've read both Garth Ennis runs in their entirety, which I'd read Max before, but I hadn't read The Marvel Knights. And it's like, then that trailer dropped, and I was like, I'm still in a Punisher mood, so I'm I'm well up for this.
2: Um, Well, as any listeners who stick around for the minisodes, they'll know that I read quite a lot of Punisher uh, the week before that. Um, I've, there was a, there was no skull logo on the Punisher shirt. No, That's but, that's worrying. Well, I, I there's there's a little there's, they're, they're doing these little fifteen second character teases. These videos, um, there's one with Daredevil um, chained to a roof uh, in something that looks very similar to something from the Welcome Back Frank <laughs> arc that uh, was recommended on. Oh, the if they, if they,
3: if they if they do that scene, that will. That would be great. It looks looks very possible. Um, And there's another one um, with Karen,
2: and she has a skull um, on her on her desk, kind of like being used as a paperweight. And the camera kind of pulls out from the skull. Um, I I think I think what they're doing is they're teasing his full costume Mm. in exactly the same way that they teased Daredevils in the first season. It yeah. seems to work because when they reveal the skull and it's not quite right and it doesn't really... You're like, ah, oh, that's a disappointment. It'll be the last episode anyway, so you'll only have <laughs> yeah. to worry about it next season.
1: The thing I was going to say, the only thing I'm not looking forward to about this is that the costume just looks ridiculous. Like, I really wish they'd just left it in the, the kind of all black t-shirt and bandana. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm reading current
2: Deadpool. Uh, Deadpool. This is never going to stop happening. I don't understand why. Any listeners that listen to our um, introduction to Deadpool episode will have missed about 10 or 15 times where I had to edit out either James or I saying Daredevil (laughs) instead of Deadpool, and now it's happening the wrong way around. Um, But I'm reading the current Daredevil comic in which he's wearing a black costume with little flecks of red. And I kind of wonder whether that's the way the show should go. Like it just, it just looks. I think it looks
3: really cool on the page, and the show has definitely got the costume wrong. Um, I, I remember, you know, well, obviously we talked about it because we did it on a podcast. But when when the Ben Affleck film came out, and there were people who criticised that costume, who'd have thought thirteen years later that that would the be best. the best Daredevil on screen <laughs> costume?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's weird. It's very S and but it kind of does work, just about. I I wondered, and I, like, I'm not certain on this, but there was a couple of shots in the trailer where I thought that the mask looked like it wasn't two-tone and that maybe he was wearing a full red costume.
1: Yeah, but, but I think that might have just sure. been lighting. It's hard to say.
2: Yeah. Guys, is Kingpin in this series at all? Like, even a little bit?
1: I imagine. My, my theory is that...
2: It- Hannibal Lecter, kind of.
1: They'll, yeah, go and visit him in prison, yeah. basically. Like, whether he'll be in it much, I don't know, but the fact they haven't announced it and shown him in the trailers and stuff makes me think he's going to be a surprise One episode Matt Murdock goes and talks to the Kingpin yeah. episode or something. That would be I cool. have
3: got to fit in Electra and the Punisher.
2: Yeah. So. I mean, I, 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 what I'm kind of hoping is that Kingpin kind of stays around in the background and that he is the villain that the... Defenders would have to come together for, if not the Punisher, but I guess I I probably wasn't expecting the Punisher to be as big a part of this second season of Daredevil as it looks like he's going to be. But it's kind of like, do you, remember, do you remember when the first Avengers film was coming out and there was rumours that Hulk would be the villain, like he was <laughs> in the comics to begin with, um that maybe Hulk wasn't a member of the team and maybe he'd be a he'd be a villain. Well, if the Punisher's getting his own series. You know, that that could work as something for these heroes to build up to and unite against. Um on a, on a slight tangent here, have you guys heard the rumour that Danny Rand has been cast already, or Iron Fist has been cast already?
1: Didn't yeah, who was it? Someone said Mike that Colter, cast him. Luke yeah, Cage said himself said it. Yeah. Which so basically suggests... they they film scenes with him in the Luke Cage, basically, yeah. That's what they're saying.
2: Yeah. And which makes sense. Yeah, but the the I don't know whether this would be encouraging or worrying. I tend to think worrying because I still, I still can't believe. Like, I, as much as people tell me, I've never read an Iron Fist comic, but as much as people tell me that he's a white guy, I just, it just doesn't seem right. Um, but uh, Ryan Philippi was the guy who was talking about a Marvel role about six months ago, um, going in and testing for something, and then it, it kind of all went quiet on that front, and I wonder whether. He might be our iron fist. Is he still going? Yeah, he's still going. <laughs> I'm trying to think what I last saw him. In. Well, he was in he was in the Lincoln Lawyer. If you remember that, I think he was in. Um, I think he was in a TV show on ABC last year as well. Apparently, he's in Damages. Yeah, sure. That was what's the show I'm thinking of? Secrets and Lies. That's what he was in. <laughs> he's been in an episode of Robot Chicken last year, Seb He's <laughs> flying high. And apparently, the TV movie of Shooter, he's taking
3: the Mark Wahlberg role. Well, you know the the MCU does have this trend of resurrecting <laughs> floundering careers. so yeah, but we'll we'll go
2: from white guys called Chris being superheroes to white guys called Ryan
4: <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> when we get the when we get the Deadpool uh, Iron Fist crossover. Cool. Okay, so that was that was Daredevil, which uh, I believe we'll be getting next month on Netflix, and the rumours for Luke Cage is that we might see it kind of, you know, as as early as you know, two or three months from now. So that would be fun as well. Um, this second piece of news, it's it's kind of not news because everyone knows it. It's that Deadpool has been successful, but it's not just that it's been successful. It's been really successful. So, like, back on our podcast last week, we were talking about how much money it was possibly going to make, and it ended up making even more, and it's still making that money, and it's proved very successful internationally as well.
1: And I've, I've been saying on Twitter, I went to LSEC today, the, the London Comic-Con, and... I would say one in every five cosplayers was Daredevil. <laughs> Daredevil, fucking
2: hell! <laughs> See, I told you. Uh,
1: one in every five cosplayers was a Deadpool in variant of some kind.
2: Yeah, it's it's been incredibly successful, and I, I would like to start this off by just saying I'm delighted for Ryan Reynolds because it. I would say probably the success of this through the marketing. Um, I was listening to another podcast um, The Thought Bubble and they were talking about um, Ryan Reynolds and kind of what he'd done in marketing this movie and in his role as a producer and that basically that even though general audiences didn't know Deadpool that what they would they they were suggesting that a lot of the success came from Ryan Reynolds essentially going hey look you know me Ryan Reynolds the guy who's almost been an A-list movie star for his entire career well Deadpool is me and then build from that. And so he kind of presented himself publicly as that character and through all the promotion that he did, and he really did do a lot of kind of groundwork himself in terms of that marketing, that they were able to build this entire film off of, hey, it's Re- you might not know this guy, but that's Ryan Reynolds and you know his shtick and now look at this stuff that we've put on top of it and... So I'm kind of delighted for
3: him that I think as, as, as this someone who Chris Pratt for his career, who, as, as someone who doesn't like the character of Daredevil, uh, yeah, that that's done it. now. There we go, we got the hat trick. <laughs> <laughs> um, as someone who I, I do like the character of Daredevil, you may have noticed. Um, no, as you know, as we know, I'm not really a Deadpool fan, but uh, you know, the thing that I've enjoyed taking away from this has been. Uh, what it's done for Ryan Reynolds. The fact that basically, you know, he's spent over 10 years obsessing about this character and wanting mm. to get this, this film made for no reason other than that. He liked the character. He didn't want to get this film made in order that it would make hundreds of millions of dollars at the box office mm. and make him a massive star because he would never have predicted that either. He wanted to get this made because he liked the character. He wanted to play him in a film and wanted to play him in a, a film that did the character right. So, Yeah, you you can't be anything other than really happy for him. And I think it's nice to get a reminder every so often with these. I think the thing is, I mean, it's been talked about at length, you know, what lessons will be taken from this and and people already saying, oh, they're going to take the wrong lessons. But um, one of the lessons that should be taken is if you have someone who has that passion for a particular project, you know, let them run with it. You know, don't get in the way of someone who who has a vision for the character and wants to do it right which actually it
2: sounds like they might have done with gambit now i don't think Channing tatum is on the (laughs) same level of obsession with gambit that ryan reynolds and deadpool has but Channing tatum it sounds like essentially picked the director and you know was on the verge of walking if he didn't get certain things and seems to have had a, a hand in the creative process thus far um, I think we've been worried about that film because of how rushed it is and because it's a Gambit movie. But, you know, that's that film now will be fascinating because we were talking about, uh, probably a few months back, about the X-Men universe and how it was kind of, at the moment, built on Days of Future Past as this kind of reboot of, OK, now this is the place that we can grow all of these X-Men movies from. Except the three biggest stars in that, Jennifer Lawrence, James McAvoy Michael Fassbender as far as we know their contracts are expiring after this third film and it seems like that's the reason why people like um, Sophie Turner and Cody Smith-McPhee have been brought in to play these young versions of the the characters we knew from the original trilogy so we're getting Storm and Jean Grey and um, Cyclops and Nightcrawler all kind of thrown back into the mix again Now, that sounds like a more difficult standpoint to build a franchise from than Ryan Reynolds and Channing Tatum. Now, the first half of that has worked perfectly. In fact, it couldn't have worked better. Ryan Reynolds is now pretty much... He is like Fox's golden goose when it comes to X-Men superhero stuff. And so... What will be really interesting now in terms of X-Men movies is where Fox go with that because Deadpool is probably something that they can build other stuff around but obviously isn't key to X-Men but is probably also someone that they could build things around. So Gambit suddenly becomes this very important thing and how they tonally pitch Gambit in a way that it could cross over with Deadpool and team maybe team those two characters up in the future seems to become important. But then they've got all these other films that have been on the back burner for ages, like (laughs) X-Force and like New Mutants. And suddenly you go, wait a minute, what is Fox's X-Men universe going to be? It's almost like this success is so unexpected that it could tear everything up. And I kind of wanted to ask you guys two questions. Like, what do you think they're going to do from this position? But also, what do you think they should do?
1: I mean, the thing that I like the sound of most is that There are rumors that because of Deadpool's success, the next Wolverine film might be R rated. Yes. And I think if you want to attract people to a Wolverine movie, it makes sense to not have him be a sort of cartoony, bloodless Wolverine and like go all out on like the berserker side of the character because that's something we haven't seen before and that might attract people. You know, if Deadpool can make 150 million, there's no reason Wolverine can't if you pitch it right.
3: Yeah. I think. Um, and I think. As far as Gambit goes, the thing I'd be interested to see is, you know, if you said a year or so ago, or, or you know, slightly longer, there's going to be a Gambit movie. You would expect that in translating him to a movie, you would throw away a lot of the silly trappings of the comics version of Gambit, by which I mean the accent, the costume, <laughs> the hair, the staff like pretty much everything that makes Gambit the Gambit playing cards the playing cards so you, you have to keep the playing cards <laughs> and i just wonder if maybe a lesson that people can take from Deadpool is that with the right character and you can't do this with everyone but with the right character you can keep all the absurd trappings of mm. the comic and Gambit strikes me as a character who could be played quite like Deadpool you know not as an out and out comedy but embracing the fact that the ludicrousness is one of the things that anyone who likes Gambit likes him because of the ridiculousness not in spite of it. So maybe pitch it closer to Ant-Man as a heist heist comedy than an X-Men movie. Yeah, but also just, you know, just resist the temptation to just make him look normal and just be like a guy, you know, in yeah. in, you know, a black leather coat or something. Actually, you know, stick him in the purple costume and the <laughs> stupid head thing and have him do the ridiculous accent, you know, even though I it's mean, that's, offensive.
1: That's something that I think if Fox learn anything from Deadpool, it should be be closer to the comics. Because as much as I love the other X Men films, the thing that like genuinely thrilled me about Deadpool was that it was much closer to the comics than Fox has ever gone with the uh, with the rest of the franchise. Mm. So I think, I think if you do that, like it, you know, Marvel do that all the time, like none of their movies deviate substantially from the comics with a possible exception of, like, Incredible Hulk, maybe. Hmm.
3: Um, but they, they that, tend to deviate creates... more in, like, character and plot oh, stuff. Well, oh, it's more in plot things, stuff. You know. Like,
1: yeah, plot stuff is... Plots, you know, they yeah, yeah they come up with their own plots, but the characters and their looks and their yeah. mannerisms tend to be, if not the definitive version, they are a recognisable version, whereas the like the X-Men franchise is literally built around them as a sci-fi concept rather than superheroes so it's kind of hmm. I mean know, even- I feel like there's room for them to move X-Men closer to the comics and be more successful as a result
3: and the interesting thing with Deadpool I mean I, this is I have still haven't seen it yet by the way but based on trailers and photos even Colossus and Negasonic Teenage Warhead look more like X-Men from the comics than any yeah, exactly. X-Men yeah, yeah, character in any of the, the previous case. films, you know. <laughs> so it does feel like it's, you know, it's not just Deadpool, it's like you know that they have opened the door to move in that direction. I do wonder as well with the kind
2: of the way that we are looking at a sequel for Deadpool which is you know whether it's called Deadpool and Cable um which i doubt it will be i think it'll be Deadpool 2 um but it it seems like that's going to be a two-hander almost um now that i imagine they'll be like set up antagonistically but it seems like that that is a film that is almost been designed in advance to be Deadpool bouncing off this other guy this straight guy and we are kind of you know we're looking at other films we're looking at how um it sounds like Thor Ragnarok is essentially going to be teaming up Hulk and Thor in space. And, you know, we've had... When you look back at Winter Soldier, although we didn't really know it in advance, that really was a Captain America and Black Widow movie for the majority. And whether maybe, rather than all of these big team-up movies, which I don't think we're going to not see, obviously we're going to still see movies like The Avengers and Justice League and X-Men movies happening... But then maybe we're going to see a lot more films that focus on that, which is like having this main character that you know, but then adding a new character to the mix or taking another character from that universe. Because again, I wouldn't be surprised to see a Deadpool and Gambit movie. I know that Deadpool and Gambit is a comic that Marvel have just announced. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I wonder whether that's something that we're moving towards, perhaps, that you know, we don't have to always have these big team ups. It could simply be, "Hey, let's add this character into the mix for a sequel," or let's just do these two characters meeting up rather than having a big team up thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, is that something? Is that something that works in the comics? Obviously, you recommended me Deadpool and Cable last week. Is uh, I seem to see a lot of comics like Spider-Man and Deadpool and stuff like that, where it's these. It's just suddenly, okay, now let's see what happens in a comic yeah. when we
3: put these two guys together. Two, mean, two character team-ups is a very... I was going to say, comic the brave team brave and ups. The bold, world's finest, <laughs> you
1: know. Marvel uh, team-up, like, it's a long mm. tradition of, oh, people will come and... I wonder if there's an article, actually, in how the movies are kind of mirroring the comics in that sense. Because, hmm. like, they've gone through the... If we make them interconnected, people will buy everything. And now they're in the... If we double up on the characters, they'll be like, oh, I can see both those characters in that one. Mm. And so soon they're going to be doing like variant scenes.
4: <laughs>
1: um, <laughs> <laughs> a joke only said yes
2: So what what do you think it will mean for the X Men movies? Like what what would you what would you do next if yours if you know you've got this year you've got Deadpool which has already been a success you've got X Men Apocalypse but with lots of stars who aren't going to return you've got Wolverine and Gambit pretty much you know lined up for the next 12 months what would you be where would you be taking that concept would you be going straight into an X-Force movie led by Deadpool or would you be going straight to Deadpool 2 and trying to integrate Deadpool more into things and how would you have the main team of the
1: X-Men work with all this given that they're back in the 80s as well (laughs) I would I mean I'm the wrong person to ask this question to because if I was Fox (laughs) I would be saying like Let's just write off everything we've done and
4: <laughs> build our Deadpool. entire
1: franchise around Deadpool as uh, like a more comics-oriented reboot. But Days of Future Past was a big hit. With an S. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be fun when
2: we get to that podcast. <laughs> yeah, really we, we, we have varied opinions on that film, I think mm. it's fair to say. <laughs> Do, I, I kind of almost would like, in a way, Fox to go more of the more down the route of okay we've got this big cast of characters of X-Men maybe we don't have to put out big X-Men movie eh, movies every two years maybe we could just look at doing these characters in in separate movies and occasionally crossing them over and occasionally teaming them up and maybe an X-Men movie becomes an Avengers like event rather than just another entry in an X-Men franchise
3: that would that would make sense but it it is predicated on the notion that they can make all of these individual films a success the way deadpool was and i think they're going to find out very quickly that they can't <laughs> i think i think i think fox are going to go back to what they essentially what they were before which is you know every so often turning out these films that do all right um and that are generally quite good but you know i think we're past the point where an x-men film is again gonna be the event that x-men and x-men 2 were back in the day Hmm. when the market was very different um because you know even the you know the x-men comics are not the big deal that they were anymore and you know it does feel like already it seems to me and I enjoyed Days of Future Past but Days of Future Past felt to me like it and particularly the way that it ended that it would have been the perfect point at which to draw a line under everything and then the next film is a complete fresh start with new actors and new versions of the characters and it kind of baffles me that they've gone on to do Apocalypse because mm-hmm. they've, they've undone themselves out of that way out and they're going to have to come up with another way out if they want to do that in future and you know that line of x men films really should have come to an end as soon as they started doing first class maybe
1: um, you know they're on about doing old man logan for wolverine 3 mm. maybe if they do that they can put a cap on that timeline and say you know yeah. this is how it ends seems you know, seems weird wolverine saves cast, the future maybe
2: seems weird to have cast new versions of all those well-known characters, though, if that's the route they are taking.
1: Yeah, yeah. But...
2: I honestly think if Gambit turns out to be a hit anywhere near the level of what Deadpool is, then we start <laughs> looking at a monumental Deadpool-Gambit crossover and that entire that entire kind of, like, X-Men universe being torn up if, to somehow... So, genuinely, those two.
1: if Gambit turns out to be as big a hit as Deadpool, I will be on the first fucking rocket off this planet.
4: <laughs>
2: uh, well we'll see It does star Channing Tatum And you can never underestimate Channing Tatum <laughs> <laughs> Okay well that brings us to the end Of our comic book movie news segment um, And we will in a second Dive into our spoiler filled discussion Of Ghost World But before we dive in Let's listen to the trailer for the movie hey, hey.
4: What do you think you're doing Shut up that noise Rock
1: and roll, baby. Freedom of speech. (laughs) That guy rules.
0: I can't believe we made it. We graduated high school. How totally amazing. I can't help but feel I had some small part in how you turned out. (laughs) Sometimes I think I might be going crazy from sexual frustration.
4: You just hate every single guy in the face of the earth.
0: That's not true. I just hate all these extroverted, pseudo-Bohemian losers. You guys up for some reggae tonight? Do you have any other old records besides these? Seymour does. Who does? Oh, uh, him. He's the man with the records. <laughs> oh, what, are we in
4: slow motion here? Come on, what, are you hypnotized? Have some more kids, why don't you? John John, who? Gina,
0: I, I'm allowed to place one student from your graduating class for a full one-year scholarship, and I took the liberty of submitting your name. This could be a really great thing for you. Would I have to take classes and stuff? (laughs) Well. I'm just not the kind of guy who has a type. Every guy has a type. What about her? Whoa. Would you go out with her?
4: As long as she's breathing.
0: I tell you, no chef, no service. Get the hell out of my store. What do you think this is, Club Med? It's America, dude. Learn the rules. Loosen up. Feel the music.
4: Ghost World, the underground comic book comes to life. We have to get together this summer. Yeah, that'll definitely happen. Written by Daniel Klaus and Terry Zweigoff. Directed by Terry
0: Zweighoff. Do you serve beer? Any alcohol?
4: After about five minutes of this movie, you're going to wish you had ten beers.
0: Okay,
2: so that was the trailer for Ghost World, which um, I think, guys, fair to say, a bit of a change of pace for us.
1: <laughs> well, it's <with Yeah>. like, <laughs> well, six movies out this year, it's probably, probably good to get <laughs> a change of pace in while we can.
2: Well, I mean, particularly, we knew we had Deadpool... And if, if you're astute uh, in terms of uh, big movie releases, you might know what we've got coming up in a couple of episodes' time and what we might have to fill in before that. So <laughs> we thought this was going to be like a pretty intense couple of months when it comes to big superhero movies. And uh, and yeah, Ghost World feels like a a really nice
3: change of pace um, to, I also kind of, just... to kind of throw in there. I also just really wanted the excuse to watch it again. Uh, yeah, I've only like seen to it, it once. eventually, and I, I didn't want to sort of uh, delay having to rewatch it. So Yeah, yeah
2: this is, a, this is a, a film that, you know, spoiler alert, we're all going to be very positive on. Um, I'm kind of looking forward to this discussion, mostly to kind of feel you guys out on what you think the movie's trying to say and how it speaks to you. I mean, because this is a film that pretty much, as soon as it came out, was kind of like this little. This little classic that everyone kind of everyone who saw was like, oh, you, you know, Ghost World. It, it gained that reputation pretty much immediately. It wasn't a big box office smash, but kind of. I was going like, to say so- it
1: was it was a very little classic because it <laughs> it just about made its money, didn't it?
2: It well, it was it was it was a cult classic. I think I think maybe that's the right description. Yeah, and like you know, it's still inspiring conversation now. And obviously, you know, interesting given one of the big stars of this movie, uh, um, <laughs> who regularly features in our conversations on this podcast. Um, and indeed, just, I'd, generally <laughs> say, just, just generally
1: in <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, just generally.
2: I literally turn to my girlfriend once a day and go, What do you think Steve Buscemi's doing right now? <laughs> <laughs> Um, but but yeah I wanted to start off by just asking you guys kind of because it's this isn't going to follow the normal format of kind of like here's what happens in the first act and what do we think of that villain and you know or what what do you think of that interpretation of the costume so I kind of wanted to start off by just saying asking you guys like why you like this movie so much why why it has stuck with you for so long um, what is it about Ghost World that works it's really, really funny. I was going to say,
1: it's <laughs> hilarious in I, yeah, it's just about just... every way.
3: The driest it's, of humour, I think it's I fair mean, to it's, say. Yeah, but... Uh, well, no, see, the interesting thing about it, I think, is that... I think you would expect from it a quite dry comedy, and particularly given the comic that it's based on. And there is a lot of dry humour in it. There is also a lot of broad humour in it. And it's like, you know, stuff like the Blues Hammer scene. And, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just... Like or the you know the the art teacher and stuff. It's just yeah. yeah, I I think it's it's a film that if you don't know a lot about it, you could expect is one of those irritating, smug indie comedies. And it does it kind of does have a lot of that sense about it because that's kind of you know what the character of Enid is in a lot of ways. But it's all yeah. I just think on a quite open and accessible level it's just really funny throughout and it, i don't know it's it's kind of difficult for me to pin down a, a lot of sort of and particularly like objective stuff about this film because i really do just love it so much and have seen it many times and just enjoy the heck out of it and it's like it's got a lot of depth to it and it's got a lot of thematic depth and stuff that we'll talk about but just on a purely surface level it's just a really enjoyable film with great performances mm. that I just yeah in, enjoy watching every time that I do, which yeah. has been quite a lot.
2: And before I come to you, James, I guess for any listeners that maybe haven't seen the film, um, we should probably explain a little bit about the plot. Um, and so obviously this is based on um, adapted from a comic from Daniel Klaus, is that right? Mm-hmm. Is that how you say his name? I believe That's, so.
1: how, that's how I say his name. Yeah. Right, and so
2: Daniel Clowes. I mean, basically, I know him from this, and also from being the guy who Shia LaBeouf plagiarised. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> delightful. Um, but so um, Daniel Clowes co-wrote this with Terry Zwigoff. Um, this was his um, like narrative feature debut, um, and it's about two girls, two teenage girls, Enid and Rebecca, Thora Birch and Scarlett Hansen. and they're kind of outsider girls, and they kind of uh, don't fit in with their schoolmates, kind of look down their nose at their schoolmates, and suddenly it's the summer, they've graduated, except Enid hasn't quite graduated. She needs to go back and do one final art class, Um, and the girls, uh, it's kind of like them traversing a summer, heading towards their adult life, finding jobs, getting an apartment, um, but also, Enid has this an encounter with a guy called Seymour, who is played by Steve Buscemi, and kind of forms a relationship with him throughout the movie as well. So is that is that fair enough for the broad strokes of the plot? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I'll come to you now, James, um, to kind of ask you the same question that Seb just responded to. But also, I think if you can bring in a bit more of uh, a bit more of the comic stuff,
1: <laughs> that would be difficult. Because okay. <laughs> I, like, I first saw Ghost World probably when it came out on DVD. So I'm guessing it was like 10 years plus ago. And I read Ghost World at the time, but I don't own it. And I honestly, when I sat down to watch the film, it was probably about 90% fresh to me. And right, I okay. couldn't tell you a single thing that happened in the comics that okay. maybe wasn't in the film.
2: Well, we'll bounce back to Seb on that. In a minute. <laughs> um, but before that, James, what did you think of the film?
1: <laughs> I loved it. Like I remember loving it, and I just I'm really bad at rewatching films, so I never got around to getting to it again. Like I think what I like most is just that the characters of Enid and Rebecca are so well drawn and like just funny in everything they do, mm. that you can't not love the film because they're you know such a strong presence within it
2: yeah they are incredibly well drawn characters um, and I would say like in, in terms of kind of the main trio because I throw Steve Buscemi's Seymour in there as well um, they feel quite like grounded believable characters and the film for for most of its runtime or like m- most of what you see feels like a film that is grounded in the real world but then there are like, kind of like these slightly elevated characters, like side characters, like the art teacher, like the nunchuck guy <laughs> in the convenience
3: store. The guy from the uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers videos. Yes. Who I, I, I think yeah. you can interpret him as literally being the same character. Yeah, they got the, know, actor, is, the same yeah. actor to do the same,
2: yeah, same shtick. But yeah, these kind of elevated characters that enter the world, and occasionally these elevated kind of events or... Uh, I think particularly
3: with like the guy who's waiting for the bus and, mm. and the bus well, that yeah. eventually turns out. I mean we, I was gonna say we don't want to jump all the way to the ending, do we? But yeah, no. that's that's where you get that sort of um yeah. Um, of, it, is this is this really happening kind of yeah. vibe. um
2: but yeah that's what that's that's what I kind of like about it is that it feels real and identifiable, but it also has that kind of little magical kind of edge. Um but at the right moments. Like never in moments where Enid and Rebecca are talking to each other and just having those kind of really revealing conversations. Um because I read it I was reading a review, I think it was on the A V Club of this movie that was talking about how so much of it, like if you mostly when you're describing the plot of this movie, the plot is mostly the Enid and Seymour stuff in terms of there being kind of like Um Big events that happen in that relationship, you know because kind of like the, if you if you are talking about the inciting incident at the end of act one it 's them meeting Seymour and if you 're talking mm. about kind of like the big climactic moment at the end of the film, it kind of is the way that um well we'll just spoil it um, where Enid and Seymour eventually suit together, but actually the big kind of the big kind of important arc of the film is this gradual disintegration of the relationship between Enid and Rebecca that kind of it's almost like the scenes between them always kind of feel like the minor scenes in between the main plot but really that is the crux of the story is their relationship even though it kind of it's always playing out in the background yeah but yeah so that's so so that's a lot of what i really liked about it um so seb you have read the comic similarly to james but you've read it a lot more recently is that fair
3: yeah I, I i had read it before um uh, in fact it's, it's one of the few comics that my wife owns and that i don't <laughs> um, <laughs> uh because yeah she'd uh, think a, fr- a friend of hers got her to i don't know if she saw the film first but a friend of hers recommended it to her and she um so she read the comic and she loves the film as well like probably more than i do to be honest <laughs> um so Seb, yeah so Seb, i said go get her and we'll just swap you out for this episode. <laughs> we, we, did, we did actually discuss whether she would want to come on as a guest, but I don't think she would have been able to answer the question about DC rebirths. So, yeah. God. Uh, Otherwise. Not without me making her a few notes for her. But, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I reread it recently for the purposes of the, of the podcast. I'd always had this feeling about the comic that I think because Daniel Klaus specifically and, that style and that area of comics in general is not something I'm super into. Um, I'm aware that sort of if you admit that you don't really like Fantagraphics stuff as much, then, you know, you get cast out of comics discussion groups. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's just it's just that sort of... I mean, to an extent, the Fantagraphics stuff and, you know, your Jonathan Cape and all, all the kind of stuff that The Guardian would write about as being the best comics. Like, I think... I'd never really got on with the comic hugely well actually enjoyed it more rereading it this time um, but it is interesting that I mean there is good stuff in the comic that does get translated to the movie, but a lot of my favorite stuff from the movie isn't from the comic and to be fair to the comic, there is good stuff in the comic that doesn't make it into the movie um I think the film really heightens the sense of humor though like I, I don't think the comic is it's a, the comic is much more of a drier sense of humour um,
1: well it, it has and, that kind of indie comics like cynicism and exactly, snobbery yeah. and like it you know Daniel Klaus is if anything the template for that sort of creator <laughs> yeah. or at least the most popular example of it because like there are tons like it
4: mm.
2: the, I, I, um, I kind of feel like that's still in the film but I, I guess what you're saying is that it's not. It's just more there in the comic
3: Mm. I think it's a lot harder to sympathize with the characters in the comic as well. But I think part of that's to do with the kind of the length and the the pacing of it. Um I mean the thing about the structure of the comic is that it's a it's a kind of a series of vignettes rather than one long story. It does still have a through arc, but the through arc is more the kind of disintegration of the friendship. But the interesting thing about it is that each kind of chapter you know, there'll, there'll be like a time skip between chapters, and actually, you get the sense that the deterioration is kind of happening off the page between installments. You know, it, like you feel like you're missing significant moments in their relationship. That you know, because you've kind of jumped forwards, and, and 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 each each kind of chapter of the comic is just like alighting on a little incident or day in their lives. Um, you know it, it it doesn't have a kind of you know a movie style arc the way that the movie does it, it doesn't have the Seymour plot at all it has one of the episodes as it were has the the bit with them um, you know fake prank calling the, the personal ad guy at the yeah. diner um, actually the <laughs> it's weird because the sort of the diner stuff is funnier in the film, and I, I love the "Can we call you Weird Al?" bit, and that line is in the comic. But
4: actually, yeah, the comic,
2: the, the guy is perfectly
3: cast for that. Yeah, line. great, <laughs> um, great Weird Al hair. The the comic actually kind of flips it at the end, and it's like when they when they go back the second time, um, and they had have the whole bit with the you know the guy who comes um, you know um, and realizes that he's been stood up, and. The whole thing ends up feeling quite sad and pathetic, and it's it, it's actually it's probably one of the better bits of the comic. But it's interesting that it plays out in a completely different way. Whereas in the film, it's more played for laughs, you know. And obviously because you have the follow up of you, you know, you follow Seymour and and meet him and get to know him later. Um, so are you saying in the comic it's sad and pathetic for the Seymour character, or it's sad and pathetic for the girls? It's kind of for the girls. They sort of basically mm. that chapter ends with them leaving the diner. Um, and Enid kind of feels quite guilty and ends up leaving a massive tip for the waiter. And as they're walking out, Enid just goes, "That wasn't as much fun this time." And it's just got this bleak sort of, "Yeah, you know, we thought this would be funny, but actually, it was all just a bit sad." Kind of, and they kind of realise that they were mocking people who didn't really deserve to be mocked. You know,
2: yeah, there's that. There, there is that sense that I, I felt that pervades the entire movie, and I think this is this plays into the idea of. Or it plays into the question of whether you like Enid and Rebecca or not when watching the film. Because I find them very hard characters to like, but mm. uh, incredible characters to spend time with and watch. Because I think... they really they don't like anybody. And there's that moment where Enid kind of... The, the person, Seymour, who she ends up liking, I think she ends up liking because she recognises herself more than anything um and 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 she kind of there's the conversation where she's talking to rebecca when rebecca's working in the coffee shop and kind of says like the freaks and creeps and weirdos there are people and obviously Mm. at that point she still identifies with those people and rebecca doesn't but also it never seems like it seems like she she recognizes that they should be her people but also she, she's laughing at those people and making fun of those people as well as doing this, you know, kind of like she, she has no respect for any of the other kids in her art class or anything like that. And really oh, like her dad, who is quite similar to her in a lot of ways, she There's the, there's a great moment in that scene where she repeats the, uh, guess, guess where I've been the same <laughs> yeah. thing that her dad does. Um, and she kind of remains an outsider, even though she kind of recognises those people as hers. And for, the, for me, it seemed, it seemed like that what's central to the film is that idea of these two girls, their relationship falling apart because one of these two outsiders decides to assimilate and kind of transition from adolescence to adulthood, and the other one gets stuck being unable to do that without the film really taking a position on which one is better.
1: Yeah, because I was gonna it seems say kind of
2: like tragic for everyone.
1: Like one of the things I like about the film is how they sort of very slowly show you Rebecca getting into that position through like the choice of her clothing and stuff. Her
3: costumes mm. are
2: fantastic in yeah, this film. Like
1: they really like nail the transition in like every time you see her, she's a little bit more grown up until the end she's in like She's wearing pants
2: because yeah. it's bare legs <laughs> all the way through the movie. Mm-hmm. Whereas Thora Birch is still clomping down the street in
3: those big big boots Mm -hmm. on the kind of you know the do you like her question I mean I've I've read you know write ups or or comments on this film that criticize it because they don't like Enid and they you know they find her unlikable and irritating (laughs) for various reasons I don't disagree with the sentiment of disliking her but I think it's a reason to like the film it's like I, I don't like the film in spite of not really liking Enid like not really liking Enid, I feel, is part of the point. And I also think that if you watch this film and you don't like Enid, but you also don't recognise any of yourself in her, then yes. you're lucky. You know, well,
2: I think that's um, the key because There's I, th- so I think much she's to a... identify with.
3: Yeah, she. I like. I, there are there are lots of ways in which you can identify with her while also disliking her because you can identify in her the parts of yourself that you don't necessarily <laughs> really like. You yeah.
1: know. To be fair, like I really like it. I think <laughs> well, she I, would be I, great I w- fun to hang out with, and if she was <laughs> real, I would be straight into that circle of friends. <laughs> <laughs>
2: You'd be like, but, but get that a- Rebecca. We'll be buds. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, think. Like, a-
1: to be fair. I don't like Rebecca as much as I like Enid. It's, like I say,
2: though, it's, it, I felt like it was a constant struggle. Like, I kind of... I, I You can identify with these characters, and you can certainly identify with them at a certain part of their life, and you can kind of despair at certain decisions they're making and kind of, like, uh, agree with other decisions or, like, find certain things they're doing funny but find certain other things they're doing and saying cruel. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, like... like it, it doesn't like it. It doesn't for me add up to kind of like a, a satisfying thing for either of the characters. I kind of I kind of like everyone. I like Seymour as well, but then Seymour is kind of getting angry with everyone in the world around him. And you are going, ah, d- d- calm, <laughs> calm down, Seymour. stop. You know, yeah. They're, they're, for me, they're people that kind of like I could imagine being friends with and wanting mm. to like more than I
3: do. The, the The thing I find interesting with Rebecca actually is that. Um, Like, with Enid, obviously Enid kind of has this kind of, you know, attitude and and way of looking at people that, that kind of is either that she deliberately completely buys into or that just is inherently her. With Rebecca, she does that sometimes. And actually, I think most of her best moments in the film are when she's playing along and when she's being as much like Enid as Enid is. Like, a lot of the best snipey lines and stuff actually do come from Rebecca rather than Eena. it's Rebecca who says can we call you weird Al for example <laughs> um, and it's like when she's kind of playing along you know she, she's really funny but you get this sense as well that she is only ever playing along like you, you do have this undercurrent of do you actually buy into being the outside of the way that Enid is I know that's part of the whole you know kind of crux of their relationship yeah. but it's interesting because I think particularly when they're younger and like when they're first coming out of high school and stuff you know you can see to an extent that they're on the same wavelength but also that Rebecca is pulled in this direction of oh guys actually do want to come and talk to me kind of thing you know yeah. um, but, there, but there are moments where I think she genuinely Like, I don't think she's pretending to be snarky and sneery about people just because she's friends with Enid. It's Hmm. just that she's torn between taking this outsider's view of the world and then actually realising that she needs to become a part of it, you know.
2: Well, that's it, but that's the interesting thing about Rebecca. I don't think that she almost... uh, She never seems to me to be a character that is torn. It seems like that she knows exactly what she wants from life and this seems natural and she doesn't even have to think about assimilating. That's just something she's going to do. And I think... I don't know like whether this is... Uh, like I, I assume this is what every kind of person goes through. Is that you have different groups of friends. And you act differently around certain different people. In the same way that kind of... If you're hanging around with your friends on um, a Saturday night. But then going to work on Monday morning. Your personality... Mm. You know how to shift the way you talk to people And and behave depending on those different situations.
0: How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to Blue Nile dot com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since nineteen ninety nine. That's Blue Nile dot com. Blue Nile dot com.
2: And you see that for Rebecca, there is no. There's no struggle from being snarky with Enid and then dealing with customers, so she can laugh at Seymour and say weird, say say to Weird Al, can we call you Weird Al? But when she's dealing with a customer who's been outright rude to her face, she just deals with her professionally because that's that's what you do. And I, I think that kind of speaks to the kind of the transition of her from being a kid to being an adult, um, and that really. Enid is probably more genuinely the personality that she is when she's around Rebecca and mm. doesn't know how to modulate that and I think her her view of the world is genuinely her view of the world Rebecca kind of that's her view of the world when she's with Enid, but when she's not she she acts differently and so it does it really doesn't matter who Enid is talking to she will always act the same, and that kind of. Sticks her in kind of a, a state of Arrested Development but you, Also really in, in a way Might be more heroic
1: I was going to say do you think Arrested Development Is necessarily fair though? Well I, I I Think it is
2: because really She I mean during the course of the, of the movie She doesn't really Progress The uh, I think the, the Only thing that changes right at the End is kind of it's kind of forced upon her. It's kind of like, I have resisted change this entire movie and now I have no option left but see to take a different path.
1: My reading of it is more along the lines of people are going to change whether I do or not. Like, there's a bigger world out there that you can go to. Like, she can be herself somewhere else but not here.
2: Yeah, I mean but that that still is changed to a degree.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I just I'm I'm not sure it's necessary... well I'm not sure it's like the intention of the story that it's bad that she hasn't like her personality hasn't she hasn't grown out of it.
2: No, well I see I'm i I'm not sure whether there is a good or bad in this story because like I say, I kind of feel like I kind of feel like, I mean, every character has an unhappy ending to an extent. I mean, (laughs) Seymour is completely destroyed. Rebecca has kind of uh, removed all of the edges from her personality. And to what, essentially, rent a tiny little apartment and work in a coffee shop? Like, she has no aspirations beyond that. That's kind of, like, that's kind of her set up for life. And she's also slightly screwed over by Enid's kind of bailing at the last minute and Enid has kind of destroyed every personal relationship in her life um and kind of made everyone else worse off for it as well um you know kind of like ev- everyone she interacts with kind of ends up at a worse state than they were before she does and so it's not I'm not necessarily sure that the film is saying the way that Enid is is bad and that she needs to now go off and change, but she certainly exhausted all of the options around her. And I and I think certainly the way she is is bad for the people around her, whether it's good or bad for her is is another question.
1: Yeah, I dunno. I just I find myself more sympathetic with Enid than anyone else in the story. <laughs> 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 like, I don't know what that says about me, but I just kind of I get the feeling of Well, it is unfair that you have to jump through all these bullshit hoops and <laughs>
4: hmm.
1: like pretend to be someone you're not to get ahead or you know have the corners knocked off you if you want to be who you are like f- i see also, i see what is, you're saying a- but i mean that- for me i think it's it's not an unhappy ending for Enid because i think she's going on to something better than the rest of them
3: Depends. Depends if you interpret that last scene as a metaphor, but that's a that's a later discussion. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just I, the interesting thing, and this is something that's kind of occurred to me now, really, is that though that actually all of the bad stuff that happens to everyone by then, not so much with the you know dissipation of Enid and Rebecca's friendship, but I'm thinking specifically of basically everything that happens to Seymour mm. happens as a result of probably the only point in the film at which Enid decides to do what is asked of her by the people around her mm. and by society by which i mean you know she's been she's she's in this art class and she kind of does her art that's her own kind of expression and stuff and then she gets basically told by the art teacher um you know oh this art should be meaningful and you know they talk about the kind of found art and you know Um, how everything should be like a social comment so she finds this coon chicken thing and presents it as a found art piece that's making a point of social commentary and society roundly turns on her and says how dare you have brought this up that (laughs) leads to her getting her failing grade and not getting her scholarship that's what leads her to drunkenly depressedly go and sleep with Seymour and what leads to Seymour losing his job so actually you know if you're if you're saying that sort of does the film take a position on whether she should go along with what society wants or go her own path, the one point at which she doesn't go along her own path is what in a way <laughs> leads to <laughs> the complete destruction well, of Seymour's life. So I would
2: offer the flip side to that and say uh, obviously that is one reading. the The other reading is that Enid and Rebecca are outsiders but they don't seem to be outsiders with rhyme or reason. Like, they kind of don't know, for the most part, why they're making fun of other people. You know, they'll just kind of see people on the street and go, oh, look at them, they look like Satan worshippers, so let's laugh at them. Or, oh, hey, look at this sad sack in the paper who's trying to meet a woman. That seems like someone we can make fun of. And, like, I, I feel that, like, as much as you kind of as much as there is so much to draw you to the character of Enid, Enid, because she is really interesting and I think, like, in a way, likeable. Um, They they don't really stand for anything. They don't really have... They're they're kind of hollow in that (laughs) personality type. And so when it comes to the art, the key for me is that that piece of art she presents is a piece of art purporting to say something... But it's not her saying anything; it's her latching hmm. on to someone else's
3: expression to but really. That's, something but that's, that's true of thought. everything else that's in the art class as well. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's a, yeah. But not, I don't think nothing in that art class is original expression. <laughs> but I don't feel that the film. Um,
2: I don't feel that the film ever tries to elevate those other people. I mean, but what I'm saying is, I kind of feel like that. For me, another thing that was key to this film was that it was that Enid was this powerful character, but that she ultimately... She was doing everything for the sake of it. So, like, when she dyes her hair um, green and says it's like, you know, it's almost satire of 70s punk, I mean, she's saying it is, but really the reason she's done it is to kind of lash out at her friend. Like, it it seems like that, that, that these two characters are both very hollow, but one has imagination and ideas and and probably potential which, you know, Enid has that potential but she just, she still hasn't latched onto an actual reason for being
3: yet. I mean, none of what you say there is necessarily untrue but they're teenagers oh, and that's yeah. kind of the point of the film. I mean, yeah, you know, they don't really know shit but teenagers don't know shit and teenagers are idiots. No, and, but I, I'm kind of talking about know. thematically
2: the reason that Enid isn't, or is, or isn't able to move on. I feel isn't able to transition into adulthood, but yeah, because she
3: doesn't know what she wants yet. She doesn't know what she's trying to say. But but again, I mean, I, I don't think that's something you can negatively judge her character for. It's like when, when she says that line about, you know, um, the, of, it's obviously an original 1977 punk rock. It's such an annoying line that that betrays such a complete lack of understanding of all kinds of things. But it's being said by someone who's a teenager. Mm. And it's exactly the kind of thing a teenager would say. And it's like all of the kind of flaws in, in both their characters and in, and in both their kind of understanding of things flaws that i don't think you can criticize them specifically for so much as you can the fact that it's because of how young they are and and as i say that's kind of part of what i think the point of the film is is that you you know they're faced with this world that expects them to stumble out of school and immediately fit into it but they don't know how to well i think that that basically they both have
2: ideas of who they want to be and there is one character who is able to seamlessly make that transition from adolescence
3: to adulthood. And, but does she though? Is the question? I, I, I mean, <laughs> because I, is she not? Is she not just living this whole? It's like you well, don't know is. or she, see what she has in her life. Like she pretends to Enid that she's going out with friends from work when actually she's sitting at home watching TV. You don't actually know if she has any kind of interesting life when she's gone off and got this job, because she's just kind of become a drone, basically. No, but now, I, maybe I'm she's not... content and happy, but the film doesn't give you any reason to think that <laughs>
4: to she is. That, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, but so I'm, I'm not presenting the transition from being a teenager to being an adult as to be a positive thing in reflection to those characters. But what I'm saying is one character does that, and i don't think she ends the film with a happy ending and one character mm. doesn't do that and again i'm not sure whether her ending is happy or not but it certainly has the potential to be happier than rebecca's so kind of these these two character arcs that you've got what i'm saying is i think the film is about making that shift in teenage life and obviously it's mostly about the you know the evaporation of that friendship as they both succeed or fail in doing so, but Enid, for me certainly, during the course of the film, is unable to transition into adulthood. And what's clear is that the way she is as a teenager is destructive to people around her.
1: See, I, I disagree with the premise of tra- transitioning to adulthood.
4: <laughs>
1: like the, I think your reading is correct but only in the, in the through the lens of there is a transition that needs to occur. I think the premise of the film is the transition is bad because, like, as Seb said, when Enid tries it, it just fucks everything up and the people who have transitioned into adulthood are all miser- miserable.
2: Well, I think probably the best way to kind of, like, put a ribbon on this kind of part of the discussion is to talk about your interpretation of the ending. So throughout the film, we've seen this old man waiting for a bus on a, at a bus stop that is out of service, and Ina tells him that a bus hasn't come down this route for two years. And he says, no, you're wrong, I'm going to wait. And um, they see him a couple of times throughout the film, and then finally, he's not there anymore. And at the end of the movie, after all of, kind of her other relationships have broken down... And the art school thing has fallen away. Enid packs a bag and goes and sits at the bus stop. And a bus turns up and she gets on it. So how do you
3: guys interpret that ending? Do you think it's supposed to be literal? Can, can i just pick up on one thing by the way that specifically what norman says is you don't know what you're talking about which i haven't delivered it very well but is one of his delivery is one of my favorite deliveries of any line in any film and whenever i whenever i say that to anyone or think that to anyone i i think of that specific line and him saying it that way i, I love that line um so essentially you've just said it to me
2: and yeah. now you're gonna continue with
3: your answer um i mean this okay so this thing with the ending i should stress that this is not necessarily my interpretation um but it was actually so again something that that joe turned to me and said after we watched the film the other night she was like do you think this is the case and it's not something that really occurred to me before and then i went and read up on it and it turns out there are lots of people who think it and um daniel klaus and and terry zweigoff were like oh we never really thought of it that way but like hundreds of people have said it mm. um so that it's potentially a metaphor for Enid having committed suicide at the end basically. I hate that. I really hate that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Like I I can see how it could be a reading of the ending but I see it as something a bit more hopeful than that.
3: What do you see? see I as? don't necessarily I don't necessarily see the ending as hopeful the way that James says because I think my my feeling that I take away from the ending is that she will go somewhere else and and probably make a lot of the same mistakes again and, and that, you know, her dream of going somewhere else where nobody knows her won't necessarily solve her problems, but that's kind of by the by. But, I, yeah, I mean, i I wouldn't go so far as to say I take the ending literally because of the fact that this idea of, you know the bus turning up on a bus route that doesn't have buses, and also the fact that a bus happens to turn up at the point that she decides that she 's going to leave, so I still sort of see the actual scene and the visuals as more metaphorical, mm. uh, even though the film hasn 't really done that with anything else and I think that's part of why it 's tricky to get a handle on the ending is because the film doesn 't do anything else metaphorical through it you know everything on screen is literal for the rest of the film so you, you're you kind of obliged by the rules of the film to take that ending literally, even though it doesn't really make sense. But, I yeah, I, I don't see it that Enid has committed suicide at the end of the film. I see it that she has she has left that life and, and gone on, you know, to start a new life somewhere else. But um, I do... I think it's... I, I could see it as a valid interpretation simply because, like I say, I don't believe that she literally gets on a bus at the end of the film. And so for that reason, I think you can if you're already taking it as non-literal, you can go in a couple of different directions with it. And also because I don't see the ending as hopeful as James sees it.
1: I I do take it as literal. (laughs) And I I think I take it as hopeful because I identify more with Enid than anyone else in the film. (laughs) And I just think like, speaking from my own experience, like getting out of the small town where I was born and leaving all the like fuckheads behind (laughs) was a very positive step for me.
3: So, although you didn't do it in quite the same way, because you're married to someone who grew up in the same
4: town as you, yeah, like like,
1: you know, I I use the term "fuckheads" (laughs) to refer to a specific group of people. Yeah,
2: you see, I I I see it I I see it as a hopeful ending, um, but not a literal one. Um, I mean, you you could you could take it literally; it's by the by, but I think it's just the the metaphor is okay. She is moving on from this place and this time and something different is ahead. And now whether you think that um she will carry on being the same person somewhere else, or whether she will, you know, she will change, she will she will act differently, she will um forge relationships that are more solidly built than the ones she had done before. Um but I think it is a hopeful ending. I think because everyone essentially Gets a sad ending, and again, I kind of, I kind of lay all of that on the doorstep of Enid, um, because of the way she's acted. Uh, certainly, in in those key relationships, she seems to me throughout the film to be, she seems that seems to be the most important thing in her life, like her friendships and the the relationship she builds with Seymour, um, and but yet she seems intent on sabotaging and destroying them Um, like she she is rebelling against against anything that would make those other people happy because she looks down on the way that those things make other people happy and I think that's partly to do with the way that she isn't sure about what will make her happy yet so I I see that ending as like this is the one character who at least still has potential um and at least still has um a a potentially positive future ahead now whether that character is capable of forging that you know remains to be seen and so that probably depends on whether you see it hopefully or not
1: i mean i think if we've established anything is that there's a broad range of ways to interpret the film and its ending like Hmm. maybe that's why it's so popular
2: so, for you guys, what do you think is the key message of the movie, or certainly like what is what is the one thing that you take away from it you know because death of the author mm. and all that I don't, <laughs> I, I, I don't really care what yeah. Daniel Klaus is trying to say so much as what you know what yeah. what we
3: get what we get is the main takeaway? I think probably the way I would sum it up is what it's basically saying is when you're young um the world and other people are strange and confusing and, frankly, a bit stupid. And when you get older, that doesn't necessarily get any better.
1: <laughs> I'd, I'd append that to you realise that you are strange and confusing and a bit stupid.
3: Well, yeah. But it's like, you know... Like I say, it's like what I was saying before about how, like, a lot of, a lot of the way Enid is, you can put down to the fact that she's a teenager. But then you know she encounters Seymour who basically feels about the world the exact same way that she does but he's had 30 extra years of feeling that way and not ever managed to fit in himself so i just i mean while it is a film that i find very amusing and very entertaining it's really nihilistic
1: <laughs> again that's probably why i like it
3: <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, you know, it's it is a sort of when you stop and think about it, this is really depressing kind of thing, which is probably why it's a good thing that it's got stuff like the the Blues Hammer scene and the the Mirror Father <laughs> project and you know all of those bits that you know you are you are basically laughing to hide the tears. <laughs> What's going on with the nunchuck guy? Is
2: he is he just there to in? Just inject this thing. It's just, comic. Thing of it's just weird. comic relief,
3: isn't it? But, but it's, it's also—it's so
2: a different. Everything type about of weird, him is such a specific choice, <laughs> from like the ridiculously like chiselled body, but that is half sunburned, <laughs> to the hairstyle and the sunglasses and the mustache and the nunchucks.
3: And I, mean, I think if, I think if you were going to look for some kind such of meaning creation. in it, I might say that. And I think particularly if you compare him to John Ellis the the creepy zine guy like it's it's very easy if you if you look at Enid and if you look at her friendship with Seymour um for to for the film to potentially go down a route of um the interesting and weird people um and the kind of people who Enid sees as heroes are the weird geeky ones and actually you know. Another guy who's a weird, geeky guy is just this horrible, complete shit. And in the comic, John Ellis is even worse. Like, he ends up on television defending uh, a paedophile priest. Um, Which
2: character is that, sorry? Uh,
3: John Ellis, the guy who, um, you, who um, lends her the videos. Ah, right, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and... Then on the flip side, some, you know somebody else who is completely weird and in some senses a complete outsider from society is this kind of macho jock, 80s throwback, you know, uh, menial worker, smoker type. He's sort of, you know, I, I, I think, yeah, I think if you're going to, I don't know if this is necessarily the intent, but I think if you're going to look for any meaning, it's that... Um, these weird outsider people can come from all stratas of people and aren't necessarily people like Seymour who are obsessive nerds who collect records. Is is there an argument that kind of everyone's an outsider?
2: You know, because certainly all all of the adult characters that we see, I mean, because you've got like, or like basically all of the adults are projections of what Enid and Rebecca can be, could become, like, from, like, Marge, the woman who um, is the girlfriend of Enid's dad, she kind of could almost be Rebecca in 40 years. And, you know, Rebecca's dad is... is uh, So Enid's dad seems like someone who's completely assimilated, but is also quite clearly a nerdy outsider who wouldn't, you know, wouldn't fit in. I, lo- I the love Enid's people. dad, but I, I love Bob Balaban well, yeah. basically anything. So. hard not to love Bob <laughs> Balaban. But you you know, and there's the nunchuck guy, and there's Seymour, and it just seems like you know, all of these all of these people, you know, uh, like they're either people who are kind of following Enid's path or fi- following Rebecca's path, but like. No, not none of those people are kind of people that you think. Yeah, that's who I want to grow up to be. <laughs> and Weirdly, the nunchuck guy seems the happiest guy in the entire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like he is. He is the one guy who seems entirely comfortable in his own skin. Because that's yeah. the thing about Enid. Like she is. She is such an out- outsider. She she doesn't seem happy about any aspect of herself.
3: Really, I think M- Melora's maybe the only other character who's quite happy with herself. <laughs> Their, their friend from school who's no Melora's deeply deeply unhappy
2: that's why she's that's why she's always smiling
1: i did, it does feel like there's a subplot missing there doesn't it you know well, what's the, I guess, what's the capstone yeah. to that relationship like it's the way she always kind of nervously excuses herself at the end of the conversations that are the one sided conversations mm.
2: i mean it, she she is in a way just presented as the alternative to to these two girls like she is like the single face or yeah, but like you know, like the, i the, i the agree
1: I agree with you that there's more to that character that could have been in the movie, maybe it was, yeah. you know maybe it wasn't a different version
2: one thing that occurred to me when I was watching this movie, especially given that this is you know like an an, an indie American film, which is probably probably coming out kind of around the time that Sundance was really starting to hit its stride i don 't know whether this was a Sundance movie. But kind of that the American indie scene was really flourishing, and one of the big tropes of the 2000s was the manic pixie dream girl, um, or, or certainly the, the the trope that was that was coined as of, of being the manic pixie dream girl, being this this girl that usually a younger, pretty girl who is kind of unique and not like anyone else around her and comes into the life of the male protagonist and kind of fundamentally changes it and kind of imparts a life lesson on that person so that they can be a better person going forward but that ultimately that character is completely hollow in and of themselves and is just there to serve kind of you know like the the male lead's needs uh, in in a narrative sense and i found i found it so interesting that this film essentially flips that on the head mm. with you've got Enid as a character who could be seen as the Manic Pixie Dream Girl, but actually she's the one who is entirely fleshed out and real. And what she does is she comes into another character's life, completely fucks everything up and then
3: leaves. <laughs> <laughs> and yet the thing is, because now that na- it now occurs to me that you could, you could take this film and you could retell it from Seymour's perspective. You could tell this story as a rom-com if you did it from Seymour's <laughs> perspective, and and just yeah, ended it in wood scenes earlier. Well, yeah, but <laughs> no, but even you could. It's like you know, um, your favorite film, Five Hundred Days of Suburbs, oh. You know, you <laughs> could sort of, you could still end it on the sort of well, actually, because that does have a sort of tacked on. Oh, it'll be all right in the end ending, but yeah. otherwise, yeah. it's the sort of you know, a, a rom com that doesn't end with them together kind of thing you could you could do that with seymour's story in this film and and play enid as the the manic pixie dream girl but yeah instead um Mm. yeah and that 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 relationship is so twisted but it's it's interesting because it's sort of i think before that point i mean i think the film plays with the fact that that comes as such a shock because you know up to that point, you never get a sense of, oh, here's a slightly weird, potentially creepy relationship between an older man and a teenage girl, because it's not how the relationship is played. And I think the film deliberately unsettles you by sending it that way all of a sudden.
2: Um, Well, what did you guys think of the performances? Um, Because I... I mean, I think probably, like... I mean, Steve Buscemi's great. Steve Buscemi, though, for me, is a kind of, like... He's a character actor who despite being so distinctive is just remarkably chameleon-esque both in appearance and in performance uh when it comes to like just just assimilating into these different films and being great and
3: i've just got to the point now where i'm just like i expect it you it's a funny thing with him because yeah you would think like looking and sounding like he does you would think that there's a particular type of character that he would always play, and I think there is even there is this kind of myth around him that you. But you know, you compare this with him in Fargo, or with him in um, Reservoir, Reservoir Dogs. Dogs. Although Reservoir Dogs and Fargo, there are a lot more similarities. The Sopranos, um, yeah, he's Rock just um, or or you know, Lebowski. Hmm. You know, like Donny is so far removed from. Um, forget the character's name that he plays in Fargo, but um, this does feel to me like quite quintessential Buscemi, though, because I think it's got the different aspects that he tends to play well, which is, on the one hand, the kind of nerdy, you know, quiet, nice guy, and on the (laughs) other hand, the pent-up small-man rage. Um, It's like... I think it's... Yeah, I think it's... It's like if you match I mean, his Reservoir Dogs and Con Air characters yeah. together. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, you know, you never watch Steve Buscemi and think that he's anything less than brilliant, but I think this is one of his more, like, complete performances. Yeah, I would say um, this... It, and and a character that is really him to play. It's on his know? Mount
2: Rushmore of performances, I would say, definitely.
4: Yeah.
2: <laughs> um, what about Scully Hansen and Dora Birch, though? Because... I mean, a, a, a lot of reviews that I kind of looked at for this film were talking about this being essentially a direct continuation of Thora Birch's American Beauty performance. Um, yeah, Kind of which, like yeah, character definitely. continued. Whereas mm. uh, I, I don't know what Scarlett Johansson had done before this. I don't know how much he'd done, but this was certainly, you know, the first time that audio- wider like, audiences I, were aware
1: of her. I remember the... First time I watched this, I had no idea who she was, and I was kind of surprised when I sort of realised a few years down the line, like, "Oh yeah, Scarlett Johansson is in this film."
3: Um, James knows what she did before this. Yeah,
1: I was about to uh, say
3: because of how James spent Christmas. I, for
1: Den of Geek at Christmas, I rewatched every Home Alone film, ah, and Scarlet- yeah. Scarlett Johansson is in Home Alone Three,
3: <laughs>
1: playing one of the douchebag older siblings.
2: Yeah. Whereas Um, whereas her career kind of... I mean, she had Ghost World and then two years later Lost in Translation and Lost in Translation
3: turned her into a, you know, A-list star. It's still weird. I mean, it's like even if you look at Lost in Translation after this, like, I still find it so weird that Scarlett Johansson is now in the position that she is, like, like doing stuff like the Marvel films, basically. It's just like, you know... I mean, she is fantastic, but... um, you would not have thought from the films that she was doing in the early 2000s that she would have made herself one of the biggest action stars. You see, <laughs> for Hollywood. me now,
2: it seems like success in Hollywood is interchangeable because it doesn't matter what kind of film you're successful mm. in. All it matters is, is that you've got that buzz and now let's see whether we can translate that buzz into another thing. Because, for instance, you- I would not be at all surprised to see in the next two or three years, now I'm not saying he will receive a nomination, but I would not be surprised to see a studio putting some major dollars behind um, an Oscar nomination for a Ryan Reynolds film. Because I imagine Ryan Reynolds now will have more clout with the studios. He's always flip between his comedy and his studio, studio blockbusters and his uh, serious dramatic
1: performances he's the next Bradley Cooper is what you're saying
2: <laughs> well yeah no exactly and so like all it takes is a success in a particular kind of film now and so and and suddenly you've got clout with studios you've got audience rec- recognition and so you can have someone like Amy Adams doing um, superhero movies because you know one pays the bills and another one another one well still pays the bills to an extent um you know it's 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 like it's like literally that's all you need now you look at probably the films that Channing Tatum's done over the past three or four years and he can hop between a Coen brothers movie to a Magic Mike movie with Steven Soderbergh to a comic book movie lead um, or a comedy with Jonah Hill you know that like it's just literally all you need now is success and it begets success mm-hmm. um, and that one big hit yeah so like it, it wouldn't it wouldn't at all surprise me you know you see whoever wins best actor at the Oscars and you go okay well what big studio franchise are they going to get in two or three years and you look at mm. the guy that scores the big mainstream success and you go, Okay, when is Chris Pratt's first Oscar nomination coming? And he's got a big <laughs> sci fi film coming up with Jennifer Lawrence. So, you know, don't don't cut mm. it out.
1: On Scarlett Johansson specifically, mm. I do feel like her performance is like maybe a notch below Thor Birch's. I,
2: like, I think it's a notch above.
1: Okay, that's interesting. Cause I like like I recently watched Under the Skin and like I would say that's probably instantly gone in to my top five, ten films of all time or whatever. Mm, like, almost purely on her, like, the strength of her performance as much as the direction. But that, like, knowing what she will become capable of and then dialing it back, like, 15 years to when she was in Ghost World, it, just, it like, it seems like we're getting a very incomplete performance from her here and it's, like, someone who's... She's still making the transition between sort of the child actor she was in Home Alone Three or whatever, and someone who can take on more serious dramatic weight. And I don't think she's quite there yet. And I don't know well, if that's maybe because I've got more context. So
2: I'd, yeah, I would agree with that, but I just think that Scarlett Hansen is film. She's she's in a supporting role. Like there is no doubt about that. We never see Rebecca on her own, but we're constantly seeing Enid, yeah. and. So she has a lot less to work with, but I just think there's just an incredible subtlety to the kind of little glances and shrugs, and that is that really is for me where there is you know there is no kind of discussion about how you interpret that part of the movie with those two characters. You are seeing a relationship slowly break apart, and I feel like Thora Birch's character is. Kind of unaware that it's happening until it all blows up at the end. Whereas, like Rebecca is the character who, for me, you kind of get most of that throm- from. It's her. It's her responses to what Rebecca uh, to what Enid's saying. Like, kind of Enid says something and she goes, mm-hmm, I, "I guess it's like, oh, I'm not going to argue with that you here, but I'm clearly showing that I don't agree." Or just like little shrugs she gives, or little—I I just think it's a, a really, a really nice, subtle performance that Scarlett Hansen does a lot of good work with. Um, that it's just, but it's just not flashy. And I'm not saying it's her at the height of her powers, but I think for the role she was given, she was she was like really pretty good. Whereas uh, Thora Birch, I think it probably. I probably think it is fair to say that it seems like a continuation of an American Beauty character, and uh, you know, that, that I mean, maybe is may a good, slight reflection on her.
1: It's not as good as American Beauty in that sense, though, is it?
2: In like, what sense?
1: Well, American Beauty is like it's a better performance from her and a, a more complete one, whereas this feels like a kind of riff on she played that character there so here's a version of it here mm.
2: yeah well I, I, I'm more I'm I more say like I, mean, I <coughs> can't remember American Beauty exactly I think that Ghost World is a better movie than American Beauty personally um, Oh, I find that a very t- I was going to say that's a
1: different <laughs> podcast but
2: yes yeah. definitely is <laughs> we don't talk about an American Beauty very often on this podcast do we? Um, <laughs> we'll wait until Superman returns um uh, uh, uh yeah, I mean, I mean, it's difficult to say. I think Thora Birch is... I mean, they're both very good performances. We're talking about, like,
3: you know... Mm. D- yeah, d- degrees. You know. I think what I think what Scarlett Hans performance got going for it, and yeah, I, I think she's sort of... I think there are points at which she's quite... I think there are stilted moments. I was going to say... Bit, I, think are, that, I think that's part of how she was acting back I've, then.
1: I just... I um, find some of it... I
3: think she's kind of like that in Lost in Translation as well. I find some of it a bit stage schooly. Um, But what I think she has going for it. and I think it's quite interesting because I think she was in two films the same year that played on this because the other one is The Man Who Wasn't There mm. which is easily the Coen Brothers most underrated film as in people f- just forget it exists mm. and it's fantastic um, but two films that very much play on her age at the time and her having to play a character that is generally kind of perceived as or acting older and looking older than she, because you know, in this she does look older than she was at the time. Um, and I think, I think that side of her, I think she plays well. And be, that I think, as Rebecca particularly, she's, I think, very good at being uncomfortable with the fact that she's kind of moving into adulthood, but is, you know, still a mid-teenage girl. Basically, they're all really, really good. <laughs> Yeah. we've we've we spent a lot
2: of time in this podcast kind of arguing around certain little points that I think we kind of just broadly <laughs> agree on yeah. all, all, we'll all agree are good but just from a slightly different perspective <laughs>
3: <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I mean the, the alternative would just be to sit here and quote every single line that I think is brilliant but that would that would just be most of the film <laughs> we'll, do that, so. we'll do that at the end Seb <laughs> um, I wanted to turn the discussion onto comics
2: and this as a comic book movie now, uh, does does this for you guys feel like a comic adaptation? Uh, like, obviously, you've read... You've both read the source material, but, like, I'm not sure in a million years that I would have guessed that this was adapted from a comic book unless I knew. I mean, I imagine maybe we've got some listeners that when we said Ghost World last week went, oh, really? Is that a comic mm. book movie? So does it does it feel like a comic book movie for you? Because obviously it is... It's so far removed from most of the stuff we cover on this podcast normally Um, but obviously it still does have, it still is coming from that source.
1: There is, okay, there is a thing here which is that the comics that this draws on were specifically influenced by like the kind of films that Ghost World is like in the early 90s when you started getting like you know clerks. low budget auto directors doing so,
2: uh, clerks dazed and confused that kind slackers, of slackers, yeah stuff like yeah.
1: that. Like yeah. though like that spawned a new sort of indie comic scene of these kind of cynically dark mm. or semi autobiographical stuff. Uh that like there's a direct through line from those movies to ghost toward the comic to ghost toward the movie. mm so in that sense, like the relationship between them as comics and as movies is like, it's blurred from day one, really. Because like the, like these type of comics didn't exist in the eighties. It, you know, it directly came out of that cinema cinematic scene. And what kind of other stuff would you say
2: is like that? I mean, particularly in terms of stuff that has made it to the screen.
1: Uh, well, American splendor is the only obvious one that I think made it to the screen. Uh, Tamara drew maybe
4: mm.
1: like, the thing is, it kind of... It gets to the point where if you make a movie, you're selling out and cheapening the source material. And, right. like, as... You know, it's properly indie, insular bullshit. But I think that has maybe prevented a lot of people from getting uh, getting movies made. Like, you can imagine... Even, even with an example like this out there? Well, yeah, because, like, the comics are the work, and the work stands alone. Like, I... Like I you I can't remember if you've read Jeffrey Brown or not.
3: Uh, I've only only bits. Like there's yeah,
1: there's I a really lot of Jeffrey bits. Brown's work that you imagine could be a movie,
4: hmm.
1: but he's not interested in making movies. He's interested in making comics.
3: Someone must have tried to do a, a Love and Rockets movie at some point.
1: <laughs> you would imagine, but
3: <laughs> but again, it's like I don't know if that you know if 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 the Hernandez brothers have a thing of this, this shouldn't be a movie, this is a comic kind of thing. Just to think of other examples of these kind of indie Yeah, books. I just,
1: I think people are mistrustful of Hollywood and their attempts mm. to make comics into movies, even with, like, Ghost World is kind of an outlier in the sense that it's you know, really good and possibly better than the comic it was based on.
2: So, what is it that sets this apart from something like, um I don't know, I'm trying I'm trying to think of you know, the the kind of the movies that you go oh that was based on a comic book really i didn't know that um i tried, like stuff like uh, history
3: of violence is a comic book movie right yeah
1: uh, what uh, was yeah. the uh, the one about um, gangsters road to yeah um
3: there's another daniel klaus one which is art school confidential well, and Terry's together yeah think. Yeah, same director. Um,
2: yeah. So, what what would you say the difference is between those kind of movies and and this? Like, do they? Is it that they're slightly more genre? Is is the thing that defines this kind of Ghost World kind of comic? Is that it is kind of just like people hanging around in the real world?
1: It's tough to to say because, like, you know, there's nothing about Ghost World that makes it specifically a comic book movie. Hmm. Like it could have been a spec script, and there would have been you know no barrier to it getting made in that sense. Like it's not a film that needed a proof of concept out there first. I mean, the the a better question really is why when when Ghost World was made, did they not go and raid the indie comics world? Well, so is the answer it's to that, that the yeah, creators that it...
3: didn't want them to.
1: Well, to some extent, You'd I think, think there so, would have yeah. been
3: some creators who would though, <laughs> like even even if lesser ones, but. But I guess then, I mean, James, I guess the answer to why didn't they go and do it after Ghost World was that Ghost World barely made any money. Yeah, yeah, true. So that's probably why. (laughs) Um, I mean, because, you know, you're looking at a form that doesn't sell very much, even at the top level. So indie comics sell even less. So until we reached a point where, you know, you could say that something was based on a comic and that would be a selling point i.e., you know, from the kind of mid-2000s onwards, no one's going to look at something and go, that's going to be a cash cow because it's based on a comic book. Because the expectation would be, well, the comic book barely sold anything, so why would the movie mm. sell anything? You know, e- even if the source material is good... Um, you know I mean but, the, but you know an interesting thing about <coughs> Ghost World is I mean okay you, you put the DVD in and the DVD menus kind of play up the, the comic bookness of it but as you say you know as a film there is nothing it, it doesn't do a Scott Pilgrim you know as a film there's nothing to mark out that it's based on a comic because I mean one it's just not really relevant to the story that's being told you know the, the original comic does have things about it you know i'm, I'm not going to say the original comic is something that it doesn't matter that it's a comic because it is a lot of it is told in a, a comicsy way but really there's nothing about the story itself that needs to be told as a comic well, and so there's no reason for the film to self-identify as such could i take a leap then
2: and say so the one thing that i kept coming back to when i was you know researching this film was that people were saying that that basically, Ghost World had had to invent the Seymour narrative to have a structure to hang the film around. So, is it maybe that these comics tend to not really have conventional narrative structures, so that they well, don't yeah, I mean, lend themselves immediately to adaptation? You know, it, it's in, it, there is not a ready-made film
3: to be made there. There is. I mean, that's yeah. That's probably a lot to do with how they're often published because particularly indie comics will generally be published in short, small installments in you know anthology books or self-published things. Um, and you know, so even if something does eventually become a longer work, like Ghost World did, you know, the, the book of Ghost World is a collection of short stories that were published in an anthology title that Daniel Klaus did. So, yeah, I mean they will not generally tend to be structured in such a way hmm. you know as as to have a kind of arc oh, you know unless you, it's somebody's going in the opposite direction and uh and doing a cerberus uh the dave sim comic <laughs> and just going you know come hell or high water this is a big long epic thing that i will eventually get around to finishing in whatever form it's like, it's um, like um, dark tower a, a, li- a little <laughs> while ago i was um reading um for the first time a, an indie comic called concrete Um, which I nearly recommended in relation to this but didn't in the end but it's a black and white comic mostly from the 80s and I had always imagined that that had been published in quite an ongoing way and had you know, told kind of a long story. And I was surprised when I started reading these collections that they were collections of little, mostly little short stories that Paul Chadwick had just published wherever he, usually in things like Dark Horse Presents, but wherever he got the opportunity to do a two or three or ten page concrete story, he did one. And then these collected editions just jump around year to year. You know, they're, they're kind of grouped thematically rather than chronologically. And that just tends to be the way it is with indie comics because for the most part, particularly... You know, before the advent of things like, you know, the way Image are now, no one was going to come along and go, um, we're going to publish your big long story from start to finish. Uh, Here's the money to do it, you know. Okay, well, that probably seems like a good
2: point to segue into our recommendations. Um, So, uh, guys, who wants to go first? Recommendations based on Ghost World.
1: I'll go first for a change. (laughs) Uh, So especially in this last section, we've been talking about sort of similar indie comics and Seb was talking about how they tended to be like serialized or come in small chunks. Hmm. Um, I'm going to recommend a collection by Adrian Tamine, who is a Daniel Klaus-esque writer artist, but one who I prefer more than Daniel Klaus. um, I mean, there are two very similar ones, and I'm not sure which to go with. So, which do you you like the sound of? (laughs) Do you like the sound of Sleepwalk and Other Stories or Summer Blonde?
2: Sleepwalk.
1: Okay, so, yeah. (laughs) 1998's collection, Sleepwalk and Other Stories by Adrian Tamine. Excellent.
2: Do I need any more information, or shall I just go in fresh?
1: Uh, I think this will be a fairly good indicator of what indie comics are like and especially in what I was saying in that sense of them being influenced by like, you know, indie movies. um Because yeah. they're very, they're like this is a kind of auto comic which is one guy doing it for the love of it, publishing it himself virtually. Mm. Um, you know, it's not a traditional writer-artist dynamic, it's just literally that one creator and everything coming from him um but yeah i like i prefer agent demeanor dan claus and i won't go into why but i think it will be more interesting for you to read something like dan Klaus than dan claus himself
3: right excellent um seb what have you got for me Um, Yeah, so not dissimilar to James, actually, I'm recommending a a different indie comic, but one that is, again, an example of somebody, you know, writing and drawing it themselves. And I I think he self-published it initially, um, and then it got published by Top Shelf. Um, So this is Essex County by Jeff LeMire, who you might know from more recent superhero work. The name rings a bell he's done hawkeye and extraordinary x-men at marvel recently i think he's still doing both of those Mm. um and he's done a few things at dc did green arrow for a little while um and a few other bits and bobs but his creator-owned stuff is a lot better than his superhero stuff um and essex county is just one of the most wonderful comics that i've that one of the best things that I have come to fresh in the last few years. I think it's maybe originally about five or six years old. I'm not sure exactly when it was first published, but um, so what it is is it's actually the, the the collected edition is a collection of three volumes um, that that make up the Essex County trilogy. But to get the most out of it, you should read the whole thing. Um, so it's three interconnected. Uh, stories about people in a s- small Canadian town. It's basically a fictionalised version of, of where Lamaya comes from. Like Essex County is a real place, it's where he comes from but this is a fictionalised version of it. Um, so the first one is about um, a young boy um, whose mother's recently died and who's living with his uncle um, and who's a bit lonely um, and into superheroes and a kind of weird friendship that he strikes up with um, a guy who works at a petrol station. Second volume is set in predominantly in, I think, the 50s or 60s, and it's about two brothers who play ice hockey. And the third volume is about um, a nurse who looks after an old man who is one of the characters from the previous volume. And it all sort of... Ties to get, and you you sort of you get hints of how some of the characters relate to each other. But as it goes on, you realise it's more and more intertwined in terms of who people are and, and who they're related to. It's just really, really beautiful. It's the, um, Lemire's art style in this kind of scratchy black and white art. It doesn't look like any other comics artist that I can think of. He's really got this distinct style. When I mean nowadays, he mostly tends to write comics, but this is, as I say, something that he drew as well. Um, and it's. Yeah, it's just really really striking and it if it if I was to say it shared anything in common with Ghost World, it would be that slightly melancholic hollow sense. It's just really really good. It it's long because it's like about 500 pages the collected volume, but so you you'll have to make a start on it <laughs> right, fairly soon okay. to get it done in time for the minisode, but um, I, I think it's a really powerful work, and um, it's. A, I think it's a good indicator of what these sort of what James, was, you know, saying these kind of auteur you know, one person writing and drawing indie comics can really be capable of.
2: Excellent. Well, it sounds like I've got a busy week ahead. The reason neither of you have recommended Ghost World itself is because
3: it's a bit too obvious. That's basically the reason, right? Yeah. I mean, if you want to read it and discuss that on the minisode, then go ahead. It doesn't sound like I'm going to have time, we- Seb. <laughs> <laughs> if, if we were going to recommend it, we'd basically just be saying read Ghost World because that's what the movie was yeah, based on. Fair enough. <laughs> so, I mean, it's. I'm. I wonder if it may have done it a disservice. I do think the movie's better and more enjoyable than the comic, but that's not to say that there's not enjoyable stuff in the comic. And I, I do think it's worth reading. Yeah. Okay. Stick it on the pile. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, excellent. Um, so we now move into our final section, which is the pitch. Um, and guys uh, kind of counter to Scarlett Johansson's career Thora Birch's kind of fizzled out. Um and I know she spoke about this in an interview last year. I think it was with Hadley Freeman. Um it was a like interesting take on I
3: mean, was, why yeah.
2: Thora Birch disappeared from Hollywood and um unsurprisingly it's not a, you know, positive reflection on Hollywood. Um but I what I want to know is say Thora Birch is up for playing a superhero in a current superhero universe, or any role in a current superhero universe. So you know, like the MCU, the DC universe, the, the Fox X-Men universe. Pitch me a role that you'd like to see her play
3: now in 2016, and um, Seb will come to you first. Um, weirdly I've, I've misremembered I've mis- this unless you changed it from the version of the document that was earlier today but I thought you had said MCU so I, I have gone MCU I hadn't realised it was more open than it was that. always open Seb you've misread it <laughs> I've, I've misread it well I've gone I've got with the MCU anyway and maybe slightly controversially I've gone with a character who has already been played by somebody else <laughs> but who I think we can all agree hasn't necessarily been a perfect fit even though there's potential in the character uh, so I think Thora Bert should play Jane Foster <laughs> I thought you were going to say Betty <laughs> why Jane? Um, Because, you know, I think Jane is potentially a cool, interesting, you know, clever scientist character who could be quite, you know, sort of spiky and and spark off Thor and other characters quite well. Um, I just don't think that potential has been brilliantly utilized by Natalie Portman. Don't get me so wrong, far. I think Natalie Portman could do that. I think she has chosen not to care. I just think she's, <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think the thing is Nat- Natalie Portman does not really care about playing Jane Foster for whatever reason and so but I think if you're going to keep making Thor movies, you know, you don't want to just shuffle off or 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 kill Jane Foster, so recast her with somebody who might grasp the opportunity with two hands. Um, and it would also putting her in the MCU would be a good opportunity for her to run into Scarlett Johansson again yeah that would be delightful they can compare notes on their careers James
2: are you sticking with the MCU or are you going for a different universe uh,
1: I am but like I my choice is maybe more Thorobich as she was in Ghost World playing a character like <laughs>
2: okay. so you, you have cast Enid in the MCU
1: oh no 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 well, I've cast like Thorobich 2001 in the MCU <laughs> okay okay uh to, like partly on the basis that i can't think of anyone more appropriate <laughs> that she could play um and i'm probably going to completely cripple my chances by choosing someone you may not have re- oh you, you might have read this actually i'll i'll stop talking around it and tell you so that you can tell me whether you read it i think she should play gertie from runaways no,
2: I haven't read it. Okay. I'm, wait- I'm waiting for you guys to recommend it one week.
1: No, it's not that <laughs> good. Uh, so, like, Gertie is a character who is psychically linked with a raptor, Velociraptor,
4: right. um,
1: by her supervillain parents, and she hangs around with the runaways who are the children of f- supervillains who have kind of gone rogue mm. in their own way. And, like, they have these kind of ironic code names. And uh, Gertie and her dinosaur are called Arsenic and Old Lace. And she's like a kind of sardonic, cynical, sort of depressive character who looks exactly like Thoroughbitch.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And also somewhat like Velma from Scooby-Doo. Yeah,
1: she's that kind of archetype. (laughs) So, you know, I... I just, as soon as you said, what character could she play? I was like, well, she could play that because that's her.
2: Okay. So, but essentially I need to commission a Runaways movie 15 years in the past to do your idea. Yeah. That is what is holding it back. (laughs) That is what's
3: holding it back.
1: Just, we can do a lot of things with technology. (laughs)
3: Whereas my idea gives you the opportunity to sack Natalie Portman. <laughs>
1: <laughs> if you want to sack an Oscar-winning actress...
3: I don't say this often, guys,
2: but I don't like either of your ideas.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, is, is, this, is this where you're... No, one, I don't have an there? idea. I don't, I don't <laughs> have any idea. So so so, what's wrong with the Jane Foster idea? Like a good character that fits with the type of character that she's played in the past. I just don't see it. I think, and I I, I don't really. She's the
2: right age and everything. I, th- I don't want more Thor movies that spend time on Earth. I'd be happy for him to
3: get in a romance with the Hulk. I mean, this is just because she's
1: just cause she's named after Thor.
3: Damn it! That 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 would have been. She could have been Jane Foster as Thor. Ah, Thor. Uh, um, uh, well, no, because cause, cause Jane Foster is currently yeah, Thor but in the she comics. Would be Thor. So. Uh. Yeah. Can I change can I change, I it? Can
1: I change my answer to that?
2: <laughs> <laughs> um I'm gonna award the win by default to Seb because his oh, movie can actually hell. happen. Two sweetest words in the English language. <laughs> God damn. <laughs> I just I just don't have time travel, James. And also I have no, <laughs> no concepts to put around your answer. I don't know whether it's
1: Brian K. Vaughan wrote Runaways, he's your favourite like lost writer. <laughs> he's de-
3: he's not yeah, but you also said that. it wasn't very good. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, you said it wasn't very good. And, and lots- I don't like Brian K. Vaughan though. I think he's got some very difficult tropes to that pop up in his work all the time. Like when he discovers a fact about something and it goes in the next comic. <laughs> um,
2: he does do Runaways that. is generally liked though. It's not. It's not just you who dislikes it, right?
1: Oh no, yeah, people love it. I just I read it all and went, like, okay, whatever.
2: <laughs> James, do you know what I think I've figured out throughout this
1: podcast?
4: What?
2: Is it is that you you are very much like Enid, and I think I really identify with Rebecca. Like I, I, I mean, does that make me? Seem yeah, wrong? that makes sense Seymour, which is like, it's gonna come to an, a weird head. Um, but I, I, the the thing about Rebecca in the movie where she's she's kind of constantly disagreeing with pe- things that other people say, but not not but kind of not saying it just to avoid compl- uh, the conflicts of the situation. <laughs> <laughs> but you know like I feel like we get on We are We are Rebecca I, I would say We are Rebecca and Enid In high school I'm happy with that Yeah
1: Okay well
2: that is the end Of this week's show um, If you're enjoying the show Then please do subscribe On iTunes, Stitcher, Player Or your podcast app of choice And um, head over to Patreon To support us At patreon.com Forward slash Cinematic Universe
1: We have two names to read out Oh uh, I would like to thank Daniel James Laver And Sean Neal. Uh, I hope I said your name right, Daniel. Apologies (laughs) if I didn't. I'm (laughs) terrible at reading.
2: Thank you, Daniel and Sean. That takes us a little bit closer to our
3: $75 target.
1: Yep. at Uh, which point we will force them to write an article every month.
3: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and if you haven't already, go and read that Preacher article that I did because I spent ages
4: on it.
2: (laughs) Um, Okay, you can find more episodes of Cinematic Universe at cinematicmultiverse.com. You can get in touch via Facebook, on Twitter, at CU underscore podcast. Or send us an email to cinematicuniversepod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. 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 You will give the people of Earth an ideal to strive towards. They will race behind you. They will stumble. They will fall. But in time, they will join you in the sun, Cal. In time, you will help them accomplish wonders. Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks' time with Man of Steel.